big data is just a bunch of big dumb data. Welcome to the Inventive Health Podcast. My name is Jeffrey Stewart. I'm your host, and we'll be listening today to a recording I made earlier this year at the J.P. Morgan Conference in San Francisco with David Thompson. We'll be talking real-world evidence. David, you have the most unusual title that I've ever heard. What, what is your title? <laughs> My title is Senior Vice President of Real-World Evidence Consulting in the uh, inventive health late stage clinical unit. I think that brings us to the very first question. What the heck is real world evidence? Yeah, well, given that the, the name is in my title, I better be qualified to respond to that. Um, real world evidence is best described as uh, what you get when you apply appropriate analytics to real world data. And those analytics could be traditional uh, human-based analytics, or more recently, we're seeing machine-based analytics being applied, natural language processing, and so forth. So if we define real-world evidence as real-world data plus analytics, and that's, as an economist, that'll be the, the one equation that I give you here, RWE equals RWD plus analytics, it begs the question, okay, well, what is real-world data, right? Mm -hmm. um, so Real-world data is generally um, accepted to be all forms of data collected on patients outside of traditional randomized controlled trials, right. the ones done in phase one through three. What impact, if any, does it have on getting my product approved? Um, it doesn't get it approved because typically the real-world evidence is collected post-approval. Now, there are some instances in which you embark on real-world evidence collection mm -hmm. or data collection prior to approval. So um, we typically will do disease registries, for example, to support companies that have products in development in the particular disease of interest. And so in rare diseases, for example, it's, uh, it's commonly um, done uh, nowadays to embark on disease registries to um, start collecting data on patients prior to phase three trials for a couple of reasons. One, you get them involved in research such that they're doing mm -hmm. um, stu studies, you're collecting data on them, but you also have created a holding pen of patients that you can then recruit from for your phase three trials. And so in rare diseases, identification and recruitment of patients is a big issue. If you've gotten a head start on that by doing a disease registry early on, then you're in a better position for facilitating recruitment. Okay. So if we're talking about real-world evidence and it's not in a clinical trial, it doesn't get you faster or any advantage in terms of registration, but it does have some advantage, presumably, outside of that post-market. I'm on the market. I have it. And you've named absolutely. one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so real-world evidence is essential. Uh, really, in, mm -hmm. to for the commercial prospects of any product. So it used to be the case, and this is what we like to say here at Inventive, that it used to be the case, using a football analogy, that if you focused all your efforts on regulatory approval, if you achieved that monumental goal, essentially had the ball put on the two-yard line, and all you had to do was mount a sales offensive to push it across the goal line, and gain a touchdown of commercial success. 
Nowadays, all bets are off with respect to that line of thinking, and you need to really rethink your approach if that's the way you're going about it. The way we think about it now is that gaining regulatory approval doesn't even get you into the red zone. It gets you somewhere around midfield. It's an important goal, yes, but you still have a long way to go before you attain commercial success. And guess what? It gets super complicated at that point in time because whereas previously you only had one stakeholder to, to pay attention to, regulators, whether it's FDA, EMA, or what have you, once you get into the peri launch phase, you have to address the information needs of a variety of other stakeholders in the healthcare ecosystem. So, Such you, as? you still have regulators who are interested in continued safety surveillance, mm-hmm. but beyond that, you now have um, physicians and professional associations who want to evaluate the product and consider it in its placement and treatment algorithms and, and guidelines and so forth. You have patients and patient advocacy groups who are interested in having uh, patient-reported outcome types of measures on your product and to evaluate the, the use there. You have health technology assessment agencies that make recommendations on whether products should be adopted and reimbursed by um, financing systems. And then finally, you have those payers who have to make decisions on whether or not they're going to reimburse the product. And real-world evidence is what they want, because in trials, you end up with efficacy data. But in the real world, what you're looking for is effectiveness data, how products work when prescribed by real physicians to real patients in conditions of real practice and subject to all the real-life constraints that all these different actors face, access to medicines, affordability of medicines, and the human you know, tendencies for things like non-compliance. All of these impact efficacy and translate into a new measure called effectiveness. And that's what we look at in the real world. We'll come back to payers in a minute. Um, one of the things that comes to my mind is we, I know that real world evidence found its way in a very significant way in the 21st Century Cures Act that was passed late last year, late 2016. But I don't know how the FDA considers something like that if it's already passed approval. Is it just a post-approval? What exactly? No, it, it's complicated, and I don't pretend to be an expert on that. But essentially, what the FDA is paving the way for are alternative types of um, approaches to approval. Essentially, things like adaptive trial designs, um, whereby you can start off with a particular study design and then modify it along the way as additional Mm -hmm. data come in. In addition, there are approaches that have been initiated in Europe called adaptive pathways, which is essentially um, developing a little bit of clinical evidence um, initially that enables a product to be used subject to additional evidence generation in a real-world capacity. And so it's those types of innovative approaches to product approval that will get needed medications to patients sooner, but subject to additional data collection in the real-world setting as the product is being used. All right. We'll talk about payers now. Payers like real-world evidence. I, I find that hard to believe, to be honest. Having worked with a lot of payers, they don't seem to like a lot of evidence outside of what's on the label. Well... <laughs> you know, that's uh, a point well taken. I think payers are 
um, skeptical of evidence that are being that's being generated by manufacturers outside of you know sort of the confines of randomized controlled trials and, it, and it's funny I've been doing this for 28 years submitting different kinds of real-world evidence or health economic evidence to payers and they're always worried about the sponsorship of the of the evidence that's been generated in those instances but they never seem to worry about the fact that randomized controlled trials are also sponsored by manufacturers. So um, there's a bit of uh, a disconnect there. But I, I think it stems from the fact that um, outside the randomized, randomized controlled clinical trial process, there's the perception that the evidence generated could be subject to more manipulation and bias. And you know, as a health economist, I could say that we go, we bend over backwards to demonstrate the limitations of our research and to demonstrate that we have employed conservative assumptions wherever there's a judgment to be made so as to, to not uh, manipulate the evidence in favor of a, a given product. If anything, we, you know, we raise the standard. Uh, we make it a higher bar for, for a, a product to demonstrate product value. I've seen a couple of instances where a payer will essentially offload the decision of are these good data, and in one one the obvious answer is with the FDA they've they've given that oh the FDA is making a decision on something that's registered whether or not the data are good it is a stamp of approval so to speak. Another instance is when a hospital makes a decision say on an antibiotic, a payer that has to deal with the the take home the oral uh, version of say uh, an IV antibiotic then will. The hospital made a good decision. I'm not going to be second guessing. I've seen a couple of those examples where they do. Is this an example when we're talking about real world evidence and you kind of bring up the provenance as a potential problem with the data, or at least perceived that way? Will the FDA now be putting a stamp on real world data that changes things fundamentally? It's a great question, and we will see, right? Um, there are so many question marks um, right now with the change of administration and the potential for a new FDA commissioner to come in. And some of the rumors that, <laughs> that are floating around about uh, the candidates um, in question, you know, some of them have quite a libertarian focus. And if that's going to happen, then, then we will see. It's tough because um, FDA historically has moved far away from any kinds of pricing decisions and value decisions, health economic decisions. They've had um, focus on safety and efficacy, and you know, for better or for worse, that's you know, they were essentially the FDA was created um, to you know to focus on safety and efficacy, and that's uh, been you know their focus and. Uh, it's it's they have some indirect influences on price and value. So, for example, it's been pointed out that um, the orphan drug status, for for example, confers a, a kind of a monopoly mm -hmm. on a particular drug, and therefore leads to monopoly pricing. So, the FDA hasn't necessarily weighed in on pricing, but they've conferred a status on a drug that gives it a monopoly and therefore enables the manufacturer to pursue monopolistic pricing practices 
And in we see okay. that. So in, we're talking about real world therapies and rare diseases that literally some cost hundreds evidence. of thousands what of dollars a real year. Real world evidence do we want? How do we decide? Well, um, you have to understand, again, as I laid out, there are a wide variety of stakeholders that are interested in real world evidence. And it's important to note that each of them has a different perspective on what's important. Mm -hmm. And so that's what makes it so complicated because you can't simply run a couple of studies and expect all of the evidentiary needs of the various system stakeholders to be met. So when you're talking about patients, they're interested in patient-reported outcome types of measures. They're interested in patient uh, preference types of measures. They're interested in side effects and tolerability issues. If you're talking to um, payers, they want to know the economics of treatment. They want to know product value. They're looking to weigh a premium price for a new innovative product brought to market against cost offsets mm -hmm. associated with its use. And so you have to perform um, studies that, that get at that um, you know, cost-benefit trade-off. And it's the same for other entities. You know, the physicians and provider associations, they're going to be most interested in comparative effectiveness data because they have a good sense of how well current standards of care work. So if you're bringing a new therapy to market, they're going to want to see head-to-head -head evidence against standards of care. So all of these lead to different kinds of study designs and different approaches it's not very often that you can, you know, have a sort of a one-size-fits-all study that meets all the evidentiary needs. So what most manufacturers do is that they break it up and they start off with economic analyses that are using modeling techniques because that's a cost-effective approach. They do comparative effectiveness research initially using techniques of meta-analysis where you can evaluate uh, in a systematic way published data. Again, a very cost-effective approach. And then they graduate to more involved and intensive resource-wise and, and time-wise studies um, involving prospective observational research. And really the at the at the top of this in terms of real-world evidence credibility would be the pragmatic clinical trial, which is the real-world analog to the randomized controlled trial. It's a, it's a randomized trial, but instead of having a very rigid protocol focused on um, a narrow spectrum of patients and looking at uh, measures that are you know, of relevance to clinical pharmacologists and providers themselves, it's looking at a wider um, spectrum of patients. It has a relaxed protocol that doesn't mandate a lot of visits enabling you to look at care processes as they emerge uh, naturally over time. And the study endpoints tend to be ones that are more applicable to the real world setting. So things like quality of life, things like um, longer term outcomes of care, survival, mm -hmm. stuff like that. How do we get rigor in a real world evidence setting? I, I think if I recall from the 21st Century Cures Act, there's a line in there that says that even though it's real world, it does not mean that it is not well controlled. That's that's right. So I don't know how we how how do we you know square this circle. Yeah, uh, I mean it's a great question, and you know methodologists have been working on this for a long time. So if you think about um, a particular type of real world data that is plentiful, 
and widely used, we're talking about um, retrospective data. So retrospective data includes healthcare claims, which are essentially mm -hmm. bills submitted for um, care rendered by providers, whether those are physicians, hospitals, or pharmacies, um, or electronic medical records. And we've seen a proliferation of EMRs that have come about as a result of incentives in place in the Affordable Care Act, as well as the High Tech Act that preceded it. And these databases can be accessed and used for research purposes. We've been doing it a long time. And it's well known, though, that when you do treatment comparisons within these databases, there are a whole range of biases that come into play that need to be controlled for. So what economists and statisticians have done over the years is develop a whole set of um, statistical techniques that are designed to remove the obvious sources of bias and the observable sources of confounding and things like that in order to render the comparisons more robust. But it's an imperfect science and, you know, there remains no approach to controlling for unobservable differences. Uh, you know, so there's nothing that compares uh, with randomization in terms of making sure treatment comparisons are robust. The pragmatic clinical trial, as I just mentioned, is one such study design that has the same level of rigor as traditional RCTs done in phase two or three. And that's why um, we're trying to push our clients nowadays to consider the pragmatic clinical trial as kind of the gold standard for real-world evidence generation. At the risk of getting a, a bit in the weeds on something like this, if we don't make the even real-world evidence data set up before it happens, then we're going to run the risk of having spurious correlation. Like We're going to have so many endpoints that you could possibly have looked at <laughs> that you've shot buckshot at the side of the barn and now you draw a circle around five points and wow look they're all together how do we how do we stop that well you know what you're getting at is something that is a very real risk as we start using machine learning techniques to plow through big data sets and identify correlations between different types of patient characteristics um, and different kinds of outcomes of care. And it is the case that, you know, you could come up with some correlations that clinically don't make sense. They're worth exploring because just because they don't make sense clinically now doesn't mean that it's just not something that we haven't thought about or we just don't have a rigorous understanding of the underlying biologic mechanisms. But there's no substitute for the human. There never will be. The, you know, we're never going to become 2001 Space Odyssey where artificial intelligence does all this research for us and you know, gets us to a point where we could understand things that um, our sort of our basic science doesn't yet hasn't shed light on. So you need someone at the helm, a person, an analyst who is going to say, okay, these particular correlations here, um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna set them aside because they look kind of spurious, mm -hmm. and but we'll investigate. We got to see 
But these other ones over here that are consistent with what we know about the biological mechanisms of disease progression, there's something really interesting there. So eventually you get to be able to separate the wheat from the chaff. Are we going to a future where we're setting up what we're going to be looking for in real world evidence before it happens? Or is it going to be a post hoc analysis? We definitely want to address issues of study design and hypothesis generation in advance. We can do both, really. We could use these databases that I, that I just mentioned to actually look for potential signals and then seek to understand them better and then on the basis of that formulate new hypotheses that we can address prospectively. But I don't think we'll ever get to a point where it's simply all going to be on a post hoc basis where let's collect a lot of data and obviously in this day and age with wearables and biosensors and all that there's the information flow is you know is is dramatic but you know the thing about big data is that there's so much of it it's a matter of figuring out what's important because if you're not using appropriate analytics and if you're not using appropriate scientific method then your big data is just a bunch of big dumb data. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to yield any insights that help us advance the care process. I guess this is our last question then. How do we get the big dumb data not to be dumb? The <laughs> big smart data. Yeah. Um, you know, use the wearables, use the biosensors, use the, you know, patient handheld devices, smartphones and so forth to collect data. But do it in a systematic way. The passive data collection that is performed by these devices as we wear them or carry them on a day-to-day basis isn't going to be as helpful as, um, you know, setting forth some specific and systematic ways in which they will transmit data at particular times of day or in accordance with particular events. Um, such that the data that we are collecting, we know in advance what's coming to us and we know what is uh, important and going to be used for measurement as opposed to everything else, which is just noise. Well, thank you very much, David. As always, we can, you can give us questions or feedback at podcasts at inventivehealth.com. Thank you very much for being on the Inventive Health Podcast. And uh, Real World Data is now with us. Our, our, our data overlords have joined us. And so it's time for us to, to take, uh, take control of the data and make sure that, that they serve us rather than we're serving them. <laughs> yes, that's a great way of putting it. And thanks very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you, David. Real world evidence is what they want. And guess what? It gets super complicated at that point in time. 